3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Um, It is the 26th of July and it is 7am. And you're here in the studio today with me, Carnegie, Fung and Genevieve. Good morning. Good morning. It's nice to have you back, Carnegie. Thank you. A nice three-week break from the cold. Yes. How's it been um, returning to the cold? <laughs> not, not great, guys. Really, it's been quite unpleasant. Yeah, it's been, like, warmer as well. Oh, Sunday was beautiful. Yeah, it was, like, uh, very icy for a good week. Um, but I think that's kind of past us now. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> I, was, I was a bit – I walked out of my house on Sunday and just felt, like, like sceptical or suspicious. I was like, this is – bit too mm. warm yeah i was like oh it's so humid <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean i don't have to wear like five layers <laughs> yeah. and a scarf yeah and gloves yeah. and i was waking up every morning in india and checking the weather in melbourne just to like feel good about myself <laughs> um, anyway i'm back now any any highlights um mostly the food i essentially mm. ate my way through um like the city of bombay Amazing. Which was great, yeah. Any any particular dishes that really stood out for you? Um, no, I couldn't possibly pick, but mm. I think just like the food that people like cooked mm. for us was just oh, phenomenal. <laughs> you don't get, like, even when you try and replicate that here, it's like the veggies are different. Mm. Like, even when you get the spices and everything right, it's just, it's never exactly right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that was great. <laughs> Um, anyway, what do we have coming up on the show today? So first up will be, uh, well, today we'll be replaying um, a couple of speeches, one made by refugee advocate Pamela Kerr and another made by Ugandan climate justice advocate Vanessa Nakate. Um, at 7.30, we'll be speaking with Priya Namana from the Gertrude Street Projection Festival, which starts this Thursday, July 28th. Uh, yes, that's my turn now. Um, at 8 a.m., I'm going to be speaking to Felicity Watson from National Trust of Australia, who uh, is going to be talking about saving the Curtain Hotel, uh, putting it on a heritage list, um, and why that's so important to save it from development. And then coming up last, I'll be speaking to uh, author Sharon Connolly. Uh, she's put out a new book called My Giddy Aunt. It's actually her debut book as well, uh, redirecting herself from filmmaking. Uh, and it's all about uh, women from the early uh, 1900s that entertained crowds and toured in Australia. And cool. And they're all comedians. Yeah, it should be good. Sounds amazing. All right, well, we will be back with some news headlines right after this. Mm-hmm. 
Have you had your COVID-19 booster vaccine? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute, located at Royal Children's Hospital, are looking for people aged 18 years or older who have not yet received a COVID-19 booster vaccine to participate in the COVID-19 booster trial. You will either be given a standard or reduced dose Pfizer or Moderna booster and you will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Um, In news headlines this morning, we are seeing some worrying domestic violence right across the globe. Um, In Australia, a man has been charged with the murder of a woman whose body was discovered dumped in um, the bushland in Sydney's Hills District on Saturday evening. Um, It hasn't been formally identified yet, but the body is believed to be that of 43-year-old missing woman Shireen Kumar, who ran a successful pet walking service and worked as a model and was a mother to two children. Her 37-year-old partner has been charged with her alleged murder. Um, He actually reported her missing on Thursday and claimed that he saw her leave their property the night before and told media that he was very worried about her whereabouts and pointed them to several places that he thought she could be until he was um, arrested. Um, In Chicago, in America, a woman has died in a murder-suicide after she opened up about her divorce journey on TikTok. A 29-year-old Pakistani-American woman was allegedly killed by her ex-husband in a murder-suicide on Monday. Um, She had been posting on TikTok about her healing journey after her divorce, which was um, heavily criticized in the South Asian-American community. And she used TikTok to urge women to not ignore red flags in their marriages and um, not worry about what people would say if they did want to leave an abusive marriage. Um, According to a 2021 study by a Chicago-based domestic violence organization, there was a 9% increase from 2020 in domestic violence calls received by the um, local domestic violence hotline and that there were 121 domestic violence-related shootings recorded just by the Chicago Police Department. Um, And in Milwaukee County in the U.S. as well, six women have died in the past 12 days from domestic violence incidents, and three of those deaths just happened in the last week. The women range in age from 19 to 66, and they are all women of color. So... Just a really concerning trend globally of um, really horrific killings of women and domestic violence. And it's just super important to, you know, know that this is happening everywhere across ages, across, um, you know, demographics. And women of color are really being targeted as well. Um, Also back in Australia... Seven Manly Sea Eagles players are threatening to stand down over the club's inclusive pride jersey due to their religious beliefs. Their coach has said that he would actually support their decision to stand down so they will not be playing the game on Thursday, but Manly will become the first ever rugby club to wear a jersey with rainbow colours celebrating inclusivity, and the jersey will just be worn as a one-off this week. There's been a lot of criticism 
of the players' decision on social media with people saying they'd rather not have homophobic players on the team at all and this would be really heartbreaking for young gay rugby fans. Um, and finally, um, in April this year, we reported that funeral insurer UPLA, previously known as the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, was liquidated due to financial collapse and Aboriginal families were left unable to pay for their loved ones' funerals. Um, ACBF has been previously exposed for misleading and deceptive conduct. And after four months of uncertainty, um, the federal government has promised to pay out claims while it investigates the company's demise. So that's really great news. Um, and to be eligible for this scheme, customers must have had an active policy as of April 1st. Um, and assistance will be available until the 30th of November 2023. Yeah. So that's some good news. Um, all right. Well, we will be right back um, right after this. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels and the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. back on Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to listen to a track now by Joy Crooks and this is from Joy's 2021 album Skin. It's called Feet Don't Fail Me Now.
The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of the most critically acclaimed documentaries from across the globe. Highlights include opening night film Eternal Spring, bringing to life an unprecedented story of defiance on the 20th anniversary of a TV station hijacking in China, Australia My Home, an Albanian migration, depicting the stories of three generations of Albanian migrants to Australia, and many more. July the 20th to the 31st at Cinema Nova, a 3CR supporter. The Music Victoria Awards are back for 2022 and submissions are now open. Calling all Victoria musos, producers, DJs, venues and festivals. This is your chance to nominate yourself. There are 29 award categories to choose from and even more public voted categories than ever. Submissions are open until midnight July 31. For more info on the awards and how to nominate yourself, head to musicvictoria.com.au. The Music Victoria Awards, presented by PBS 106.7 and Triple R 102.7. Music Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Before the break, we heard the song by Joy Crooks, Feet Don't Fail Me Now. We're now going to revisit a speech made by refugee advocate Pamela Kerr at the recent launch of Eileen Crow's new book, Acts of Cruelty. This book looks at the experiences of asylum seekers who have come to Australia by plane and how the cruel systems work to fail people seeking safety in this country. This event took place on June 21st, 2022, and this speech was first aired on Solidarity Breakfast on July 2nd, 2022. I want to thank Eileen because this book is about the secret business that went on in the Immigration Department while the politicians were screaming about boats and detention centres and all the stuff that was going on. Meanwhile, we were trying to find out what was happening at the airports as people came through. And there were politicians who did ask questions and they were damned hard to get the answers about how many people were turned away and what was going on at the gates. I only had a small window in that I'd get a phone call from the detention centre down the road and someone would say, there's a woman here crying, she needs to talk to you. Wasn't a lot of information. I went in, I met a woman. She'd flown in by plane. She'd come in on a visa for some sort of a sporting event. And then the story, she she was um, a high-profile health provider. And um, there had been a change of government. And uh, the people in her office had disappeared. In fact, some of them had been murdered. And a colleague said to her, you have to leave the country. She said, I can't. I've got children. She said, you take the children up the bush and give them to your family and you get out or you'll have... Your children will be orphans. She came in on a plane and she was questioned for 10 hours at Melbourne Airport. And I said to her, why do you think I was questioned? She was sharp as a tack. She said I was the only black woman on the plane. Her story was one of many. She came in on a visa. She wanted to seek asylum. 
she had no choice. Um, she'd seen, she was clever, she'd seen there was a sporting event. Sporting events, you know, in Australia, they're the Holy Grail. Um, a lot of people come in and she was going to apply for asylum. They gazumped her at the airport. They did not pass her through customs, which meant she went into detention. And she was there for six weeks, sitting in a television room one night, crying her eyes out, when this old Sri Lankan bloke who'd been there for years and knew the ropes, he went over and said, what's up? Why are you crying? And she told him, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this place. I keep asking them, can I speak to a lawyer? What am I going to do? Um, I'm stuck here. No one will. They, they, immigration keeps saying, wait, wait, be patient. And that's why I got the call. And of course, we could connect her up with uh, legal assistance. Now, that came at a time in 2014 when the government removed legal... There was an automatic program called um, IAAAS. Yes. IAAAS. I'm getting old, I forget. <laughs> but everybody got legal assistance when they were put in detention. Um, then they got rid of it, of course, so they just let them lie there. And she was one of many uh, cases, and they'd come in by plane. Um, this was secret business that was going on at the airports. I can tell you there were Saudi girls who came in. Now, as you know, until recently, the law has changed. Now anyone under over 18 doesn't have to have a letter from their male guardian authorising them to travel. But all through that time, they had to have this letter authorising their travel. And these Saudi girls were getting out for very obvious reasons. And I know that some Saudi girls told me they knew somebody had been turned back by border force. Can you imagine? Those bastards. So um, then the crunch came when this one evening I was called in to visit and there was a man with his wife and three children from a Gulf state. He was very dignified and he clearly um, had come from some prosperous background. It turned out he was a poet, a writer, um, a soldier, and he'd been a representative in Geneva. And he said to me, in absolute disgust, I, I couldn't, we're sitting in the visits area, I, some of you have visited detention, you know what it's like, it's pretty grim. And he said, Pamela, this place is a prison. I visited camps for my country that were better equipped than this place. Now, he came in, he was on the amnesty rescue list. He was known, he made a big mistake. He got to the counter at immigration and he said, would you please direct me to where I can seek asylum? You don't do that in Australia. You scurry through and you hope for the best. When I went to Rome, I was amazed to see a counter that said, anybody wishing to contact immigration, go to cubicle five. My God, they're actually telling people how to go there. And then once I was in Indonesia, being deported, unfortunately, but we won't go into that. And there I stood in a queue and I watched this officer with a computer at the end of the Qantas area, with two phones, calling out the passports of every non-Anglo-Saxon-looking person and double-checking their documents to make sure that they had the appropriate visa to get on the plane to come to Australia. Yes, 
There's dirty business going on in this country. And thank God Eileen has written a book. I, it is complex. It's deep because it's about the way in which the legal system has changed. That comment by Van Dusa is just so cutting to think an Australian judge says the legal um, decision is totally correct. The moral decision is reprehensible. It's chilling. But that is the state of things. But we've got a chance now. We've got a change of government. We know Labor are nervous around this area. Um, everybody, they've made it a political football. But we have hopes that there will be an end to some of this cruelty. And in the end, if we're really good at it, we'll end the cruelty once and for all. That was Pamela Kerr at the recent book launch for Eileen Crow's new book, Acts of Cruelty, um, looking at the experiences of people seeking asylum who have come to Australia by plane. Um, uh, this was originally aired, as I said, on Solidarity Breakfast. Um, Annie on Solidarity Breakfast also interviewed Eileen Crow about this book so if you are interested in hearing more um, please check it out on our website www.3cr.org.au all right we're going to go to another song now and this one's by charlotte day wilson and it's from her 2016 self-titled album and it's called after all
Charlotte Day Wilson with her song After All. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of the most critically acclaimed documentaries from across the globe. Highlights include opening night film Eternal Spring, bringing to life an unprecedented story of defiance on the 20th anniversary of a TV station hijacking in China. Australia, my home, an Albanian migration, depicting the stories of three generations of Albanian migrants to Australia, and many more. July the 20th to the 31st at Cinema Nova, a 3CR supporter. Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We are now joined by Priya Namana, who is the CEO of the Gertrude Street Projection Festival and is here to tell us more about the festival, which begins this Thursday, 28th of July. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, Priya. Thank you, Son. Thanks for having me. 
Um, for listeners who aren't unfamiliar with the Gertrude Street Projection Festival, could you tell us about its history and uh, what it's all about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Gertrude Street Projection Festival um, is in its 14th year. It's an annual uh, projection festival that started um, 14 years ago. Um, it is a community-driven festival that is really celebrating the notion of light and art on the street um, and bringing the community together. Um, it, it has this beautiful quality of gathering and connection um, and bringing the artistic work on the walls of Gertrude Street, which I am quite excited by. And this year we're doing a similar thing. After the last two years of ebbs and flows of lockdown, it felt really important to um, to have a little celebration again. Um, yeah, so um, starting from uh, Thursday night, which is the 28th of July, um, along Gertrude Street, you'll see quite a few uh, public projections that, is, um, that we've worked with the artists um, to create and uh, a lot of the trader community and the tenants have come together to activate this street. Yeah, that sounds lovely. And like you said, especially after a, a turbulent two years, um, it will be nice just to be able to like stroll up and down the street. I feel like perhaps we've lost a bit of that because of COVID. So it'd be nice to like engage with Gertrude Street and engage with the community um, at a different time of day as well. Um, and yeah, I personally have been to the festival in the past and it's always so lovely to... Um, to try and, yeah, like see as much as possible um, and look up and look at buildings that you normally wouldn't look at. And there's the context of the streets as well, um, which you always look at the buildings a little bit differently when there's an artwork projected onto it, which is quite beautiful. Yeah, and um, it'll be great for a lot of their local artists to showcase their work in that way. Um, I wanted you to tell us a bit about Thursday, the 28th of July. So um, Gertrude Street Projection Festival has partnered with um, uh, Yalinguth, um for opening night um, and there's an event happening that evening. Could you tell us more about this? Yeah, Absolutely. So Yalingut is a beautiful um, immersive audio experience for those who haven't experienced it. I highly encourage you to do so. Um, it, it sort of happened quite organically. Um, starting last year, uh, Pip and Zoe um, and Jason from Yalingut approached the Gertrude Street Projection Festival because they, um, I believe, felt that it was a very um, uh, a fitting partnership um, given Gertrude Street Projection Festival is also celebrating the street and the app that they've created um, is celebrating the history of the street. Um, and um, unfortunately, due to the lockdowns last year, it couldn't go ahead. So uh, a soft launch did happen last year and they, uh, um, me and my new role, it felt really important um, to honour that and make that our opening event again. So we're just really proud to be supporting Yelling um to and facilitate the process um, to, to launch their app officially this year. Um, it's uh, it's a, it's it uses um, geolocated stories and sounds to take um, the listener on an experience and a journey through time, where the elders, um, the local elders, guide um, the listener, you know, along the journey 
uh, on the street. So it's a spatialized sound environment, um, and you navigate it through audio cues um, with a map that shows your location and where to find the stories and songs and poems. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. I'm not sure if you've done it wrong. It's just quite moving and really uh, locates you in, in, in place and country in a really beautiful way. Um, and on Thursday night, we're just really proud to um, to witness alongside everyone else that, um, led by Jason Tamiri's direction, um, the performers um, will be sharing these stories from the app in a live performance. Amazing. And um, would you recommend that people bring along, do they need like phones um, uh, or headphones if they'd like to access the app? Uh, yes, if you're accessing the app, yes. For the performance itself, it's a live performance, so we'll have sound and everything uh, for the Thursday night. Uh, but, but yes, you definitely need a, a phone with the app on their phone and headphones to experience it down the street. And that you can do during the day as well, or any time you wish. Awesome. Um, and it says here on the website that the event will feature um, Uncle Jack Charles, uh, Uncle Robbie Thorpe, Auntie Denise McGuinness, um, and uh, a lot more people. So if if any listeners are interested in attending this event, that's happening this Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Now, looking at the rest of the program, uh, what can people expect from Friday to Sunday evening at the Gertrude Street Projection Festival? Yeah, um, we have quite a few array of different things. Um, so um, for me, this is the first time I'm directing this festival, um, and my approach has been that every day we have partnered with a different organisation. Um, collaboration is a big pillar uh, for, for me and for the organisation. So um, similarly to Youth on Thursday, we're partnering with Composite, Moving Image and Media Bank on Friday. We have uh, a series of talks. Um, that if you have a look at the program, you'll, um, you can register through the online program. Um, that goes from one to six, and there are four different talks. You can come to one or you can come to all four. Um, and that's more about knowledge sharing with the artists. So all the participating artists will be sharing their process and journey and their practice. Um, then on Saturday, we have a beautiful workshop uh, led by one of the artists, Kathy Holoko, called Wild City. This is for young people. Um, and I just wanted to offer something during the day um, because our festival is a nighttime festival. Um, so young people could also um, somehow be a part of it. So Wild City is a really beautiful installation-based workshop, play-based workshop that Kathy Holoka will be leading at Bus Projects in Collingwood Yard. Um, then in the evening on Saturday, we have uh, a choir and some jazz on the street. And we have three different talks. Um, uh, and performances on the street and some marshmallow roasting. So there's quite a few things happening on Saturday night if you're walking down Gertrude Street checking out the projections, you can pop into these events. Um, and then also, and on Sunday to close the festival, we have a block party. Um, and we um, intentionally chose to be in our home, which is Collingwood Yard, where the studio for Centre for Projection Art is. Um, so there will be a block party from 4 to 7, um, and we have um, some incredible DJs. Uh, from the Yarra Youth Services Music Program and Lucretia Quintanilla. Um, that's in collaboration with Hope Street Radio. Wow, that sounds like an incredible <clears throat> program and something that uh, has um, events for all ages. 
um, especially with that daytime event for for young people. Um, is there anything that you pre are personally excited about? I'm excited about uh, all of it, Poon, but I think uh, a couple of things I'm really looking forward to. There's a feature project that is also a carry-on from last year um, that is going to light up the African Towers. It's the project that Susan Marshall Forrester did with the Cubbies program in Fitzroy, um, and that's calling to sell us superheroes. Um, that uh, we, uh, again, uh, I'm just really proud to facilitate that from uh, last year. Um, it is uh, Susan working with the young kids with one of the participating artists, Billy Raffin, um, doing the animation, and our player Peter mentored them. Um, it's all the kids and Susan came up with their avatars, superhero avatars that have been turned into this amazing video work, which will light up the whole towers. Um, and they're all residents from the towers as well. So really excited to see that. Um, and I'm just really excited to be part of um, the in. Uh, on the cloud, uh, with the cloud, I mean, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I'm really looking forward to um, to celebrate with the community. Yeah, it will be, it looks like it's going to be um, an incredible four days of different events happening during the day and even in the evening, um, bringing together community, like you said. Um, thank you so much, Priya, for joining us on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast this morning to tell us all about the Gertrude Street Projection Festival. We look forward to seeing everything that the program has to offer. Amazing. Thank you for having me, Paul. Thank you. Um, so that was... Uh, Priya Namana from the Gertrude Street Projection Festival speaking to us about um, the festival which is in its 14th year starting this Thursday the 28th of July and running until Sunday the 31st of July. If you'd like to find out more about the program and the artists and the events that are going on this week you can go to their website at www.gspf.com.au Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. So you would have seen that in the news at the moment, there's a lot going on um, in terms of the climate crisis, uh, including the state environmental report that came out um, last week, as well as countries um, in Europe and all over the world experiencing um, heat waves and wildfires. Um, it's important, though, to uh, really look at what's happening um, in non-Western countries. So we're going to hear from Ugandan climate justice activist Vanessa Nakate, who was um, on Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman and speaking to her about the link between colonialism and the climate emergency. 
The new Greenpeace UK report makes the link between the climate emergency and the legacy of colonialism, which it says, quote, established a model through which the air and lands of the global south have been used as places to dump waste the uh, global north does not want. A study by Care International found the 10 most underreported humanitarian crises in 2021 were concentrated in the global south, with six in Africa alone. For more, we go to Kampala Uganda to speak with climate justice activist Vanessa Nakate, author of A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate Crisis. In a Twitter thread this week, Vanessa lamented how little Western media covers the disproportionate impact of the climate crisis on Africa. Vanessa, welcome back to Democracy Now! Tell us what uh, the world should understand about what's happening, um, not only in Uganda, but on the African continent, as we deal with this global climate emergency. Thank you so much. It's important for the world to know that the climate crisis hasn't just started. The climate crisis has been affecting the lives of so many people right now. When I speak from my country, because of the rising global temperatures, we have seen changes in weather patterns that have caused, you know, events like floods, like landslides and droughts. Currently, over 500,000 people in the region of Karamoja are starving because they have no food to eat. And when you go beyond Uganda, we are seeing a drought that has left over 20 million people with no access to food in the Horn of Africa. So what I want people to understand is that the climate crisis has been here. It has been impacting the lives of so many people on the African continent, which is responsible for less than 4% of the global emissions. But while Africa is on the front lines of this crisis, it is not on the front pages of the world's newspapers. Vanessa Nakate, as you point out, uh, Africa is, is responsible for less than 4% of global emissions. And, of course, the, the cumulative population of Africa is uh, just over 17% of the global population. Now, you recently retweeted uh, an article headlined, Seven Stunning Facts About How Climate Change Is Hitting Africa the Hardest. Among those facts... Almost a quarter of a billion Africans will face water scarcity in just three years, that is by 2025. In southern Africa, tropical storms displaced half a million people in just three months this year. And one in three deaths from extreme weather occur in Africa. Could you, could you elaborate on this and why you think the coverage of this is so limited? Well, first of all, I'll say that media has a huge responsibility to cover the climate crisis, but it has a much bigger responsibility to cover the climate crisis in the places where people are already suffering some of the worst impacts. When we talk about things like food scarcity, things like water scarcity, these are things that are already happening right now in the African continent. For example, in the region of Karamoja, like I've said, in Uganda, people are struggling to find something to eat, to find water. In the Horn of Africa, over 20 million people are struggling to find food, to find water. And in the process, even the people's livestock are perishing. 
So when we say, you know, that water scarcity is going to be a challenge for so many people on the African continent in just three years, it doesn't mean that the scarcity will start when those three years are finally finished. It is something that is happening right now. When we talk about people being forced to leave their homes to find somewhere to stay, it's not that that is something that is coming in the few years. It is something that is already unfolding. We know that over 86 million Africans are going to be forced to leave their homes, to look for places where they can stay, where they can exist because of the climate crisis. Same with climate change. When we talk about the climate crisis going to escalate and affect so many communities, so many people in just a few years, it doesn't mean that the crisis is coming in those years. It means that it's already happening right now, but it's just going to make the lives of so many people harder and affect the livelihoods of so many communities. And Vanessa, a recent study showed uh, on top of this massive climate crisis that Africa is facing that many countries in Africa, 11 of them, will have to spend five times more on climate adaptation than they do on health care. Uh, among these 11 countries, uh, Cameroon, Chad, the DRC and Sudan, these countries are among the least to contribute to global emissions. On average, they emit 27 times less per person than the global average, not even the average of countries in the north. So could you explain what uh, climate adaptation involves and why there's so little financing for it for these countries that face the worst effects and have been responsible for so little of the emissions? Yes, I'll first of all say that that's one of the inequalities, the horrible inequalities of the climate crisis, that those who are not responsible are suffering the worst impacts, and they have to spend so much for mitigation and adaptation of their communities. We know that $100 billion was promised for vulnerable communities, vulnerable countries that are on the front lines of the climate crisis, but it was only promised and it wasn't delivered. But it's important for people to know that the $100 billion is no longer enough. The climate crisis has pushed so many countries in Africa in places where they cannot adapt anymore. We are experiencing loss and damage in so many places. So now the demand is not just for climate finance, for mitigation and adaptation. There is a demand for a loss and damage facility to address the loss and damage that is already happening. As the climate crisis escalates, people cannot adapt to starvation. People in the Horn of Africa can't adapt to starvation. People can't adapt to the loss of their livelihoods. They can't adapt to the loss of their cultures, the loss of their identities as this crisis escalates. So we've moved from a place of demanding for $100 billion to saying that even the $100 billion is no longer enough. More climate finance is needed, not in promises, real money for communities to be able to adapt, to be able to mitigate, and also in addition to that, to address the loss and damage that is affecting so many people. 
Vanessa Nakate, yeah, I think what's happening in the United States is a microcosm of what's happening in the world. Um, President Joe Biden created an Office of Climate Change and Health Equity within the Health and Human Services Department to prepare the nation's health care system to deal with the growing and inevitable disparate health effects of extreme heat and dangerous storms and worsening air pollution. While that office has been created uh, to deal with climate affects the inequity of them. It, Congress has not funded it. Um, and then you look at the rest of the world and the relationship of the United States, the massive effects um, of our policies and climate and what it, the effects it has in places like Africa. But I wanted to ask you about the war in Ukraine and talk about this um, coming together of both the effects of the war in Ukraine on Africa, as well as coming on top of this ongoing climate emergency. Yes, I will start by saying that we are in a system that is allowing so many of these problems to happen. It's like we are in one room, and if one part of the room is affected, eventually the entire building will come crumbling down. If it's a puzzle, if one part of the puzzle, if a piece of the puzzle is missing, then that puzzle can never be complete. So a system can never be complete if one of the things is not well. And we know that the war in Ukraine is a war that is being funded by fossil fuels. And many activists, many people have been organizing to demand a shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy, because we've seen that fossil fuels are not only destroying our planet and the lives of so many people, but they are also fueling and funding wars in many parts of the world. So it's important to note that we have to change the system to address many of these challenges. I would also like to comment on something that you've said of what was created by President Biden. That is one of the things that we are trying to talk about, that the communities that are being impacted right now, they don't have the resources to put in place, you know, the necessary bodies to help people, you know, address issues of health when it comes to the climate crisis. But the countries in the global north have these resources. They have the resources to adapt, but they are not extending these resources to the most affected communities. When we see how the climate crisis is impacting the health of so many people on the African continent and beyond that across the global south, many of the countries don't have the much needed resources to address these challenges. So the global north has the resources for themselves. But it's time to extend those resources for the communities that are on the front lines, for the communities that didn't cause this crisis. Because if we are to address climate change, then we shouldn't, we shouldn't leave anyone behind. And Vanessa, finally, you've spoken out uh, against the East African crude oil pipeline also being uh, built by uh, the French uh, oil giant Total and the China National Offshore Oil Corporation. Uh, if and when it's completed, it will be the longest heated crude oil pipeline in the world. Can you talk about your concerns about this pipeline and specifically the areas that it's expected to run through? Yes, the pipeline is expected to go from Uganda to Tanzania. 
And many of the worries that we have, especially as activists, is that this pipeline is going to displace thousands of people in Uganda and also in Tanzania. And it's going to go through a number of national parks, you know, affecting the, the, the wildlife habitats. It's going to go through one of the you know, it's going to go through over 200 rivers. It's going to go through Lake Victoria, which is the largest inland freshwater lake, you know, in Africa. It's a third of it is going to go through the Lake Victoria Basin. And over 40 million people depend on the waters of Lake Victoria. So there are worries about how it's going to impact the water sources of the people in our communities, how it's going to impact the national parks but above all, how it's going to impact our planet and lead to the rise in the global temperatures. And as activists, we face many challenges, especially in our communities, where people think that we are against the development of our countries. We are not against the development of our countries. We want the best for our countries. And we know that there is no future in the fossil fuel industry. What our countries need is a transition to clean energy, a transition to renewable energy, because this is something that will help lift people out of poverty. Because I know and understand that our countries are trying to lift their communities out of poverty. And corporations like Total are taking advantage of this, knowing how much you know, oil, coal, and gas are causing so many, you know, challenges in many communities. We are seeing some European countries run for gas still in Africa. So it's important for people to know that we want the well-being of our communities, the well-being of the people in our countries. We want the well-being of the economies of our countries, but we don't want it funded by fossil fuels because there is no future in that. We want a transition to renewable energy, to clean energy, to ensure that we not only have uh, healthy people, but we also have healthy economies, healthy planet, a healthy planet and a healthy future for all of us. Vanessa Nakate, we want to thank you for being with us, climate justice activist, joining us from Kampala, Uganda, author of A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate Crisis. So that was Vanessa Nakate speaking about the need to transition to renewable energy for healthy communities, health economics, and a healthy planet. You can listen to Democracy Now! each week at 9 a.m. on Mondays here on 3CR. We're going to go to another track, and this one's by Maddie Jane, and it's from Maddie's 2022 single. It's called It's a Lot. Picking at it, making it 
Mary Jane with uh, her song, It's a Lot. Well, earlier this year, the John Curtin Hotel, uh, home to the iconic pub, more commonly known as The Curtin, was sold to offshore developers. This prompted the National Trust and Victorian Trades Hall Council to join forces to submit a heritage nomination to the Victorian Heritage Register, registering the hotel. This would allow the hotel to remain intact and continue to serve as a symbolic landmark in Victorian history. Joining us to discuss this move to make the Curtin a heritage site is Felicity Watson, who is the Executive Advocacy Manager at the National Trust of Australia. Felicity will also be discussing the press event that occurred last night and what can be done now to save the Curtin. Thank you so much for joining us, Felicity. Thank you, Genevieve. So not many people would know about the rich history of the Curtain, even though they probably have been to it uh, as a pub or as a music venue. Why is the Curtain so important in Victorian history, especially with the labour movement here? Absolutely. There certainly are a large number of pods in Melbourne, um, but this one is particularly special. So not many people know, but... um, Victoria has one of the oldest trades halls building in buildings in the world. So the trades hall building there on Ligon Street is actually internationally significant um, as part of the um, international labour movement um, and also obviously very significant for Australia and Victoria. And as long as there's been a trades hall on Ligon Street, there's been a pub on the site of the Curtain. So the original pub on that site was built in about 1860, so um, quite early in Melbourne's development. And from that time, it developed a really symbiotic relationship with the Trades Hall building across the road. So um, while Trades Hall hosted lots of formal meetings and gatherings, the Curtain was more of an informal gathering place um, for people to drink and to form alliances and to make decisions that would shape the course of Victoria's history. And obviously that relationship um, continues to this day. Yeah, even um, I've done the walk down to the Curtain from Trades Hall, from an event at Trades Hall. It's very... um, 
uh, it's almost like a ritual to kind of go there after uh, any organizing at Trades Hall. Um, I wanted to get into, you know, following it being bought by these offshore developers, the National Trust and Victorian Trades Hall Council submitted a heritage nomination. Uh, Why was this necessary in protecting the building and how does this work exactly? Absolutely. So, What we identified was that um, with the purchase by an unknown developer, that the building was vulnerable to redevelopment and it already has a heritage overlay um, and local protection in the Melbourne planning scheme, but essentially that only protects the exterior of the building and What we realised was that what is significant about that building isn't just the exterior, but what happens inside the building and its role as a cultural place in in Melbourne and um, not only its importance as a gathering place for the union movement, but also as a live music venue as well. So we undertook a lot of research to um, research the history of the building and to um, assess its significance as a heritage place. And we realised that it was really highly significant and that prompted us to nominate it to the Victorian Heritage Register. So what happened um, yesterday in our announcement yesterday was that Heritage Victoria is backing that nomination. A final decision needs to be made by the Heritage Council. But if it is included in the register, that will provide um, more comprehensive protection for the building and mean that its cultural heritage significance, not only um, the, the building itself and the building fabric, but also the interior of the building and the use of the building would need to be considered as part of any redevelopment. Yeah, definitely. And um, I guess following this move to uh, nominate it uh, for as a heritage site, uh, what has been the response that you found from the public? You know, I'm obviously many people have been to the curtain. Um, have you found that many people uh, have obviously backed to protect the pub? Has there been a nice support network around? Absolutely. More than probably any heritage place that I've ever advocated for in my role as a heritage advocate, there's been this groundswell of support for the protection of the building. And what's really evident is that it evokes so much passion in people. And um, what is really significant about this pub in people's lives is that it often marks important phases of their life. So as you say, um, it's a, a bit of a ritual and a rite of passage in terms of, of organising and, and the, the union movement. Also a really important place for students at RMIT um, and Melbourne University as well um, as a bit of a drinking hall and really importantly as a live music venue as well. And what we learned from talking to musicians and um, bookers and people who are involved in the live music scene in Melbourne is that it is a really important music venue for new artists to sort of break through to that next stage of their career. So it plays a really pivotal role in that sense as well. So we've had, um, as part of the process of assessing the building significance, um, Trades Hall and the Curtain did a big call out to 
their supporters to tell stories about the curtain and why it's significant. And we collected hundreds of stories from people um, who really value the curtain and told us about um, the role that it plays in their lives. And all of those stories have been a really important part of Heritage Victoria's assessment of the building's significance. So Heritage Victoria looked not only at the building's history um, and and what has happened there in the past, but also those really important um, relationships and communities um, of the present day. Yeah, definitely. And you touched on a few things then with, you know, why it is so important to protect almost like the kind of like gathering points, even though, you know, it's just a pub or whatever. It's it's a nice gathering point for community. But I guess in a more of a broader sense, why is it important we protect uh, these culturally and historically significant buildings uh, in Australia from developers? Yeah, well, I think you kind of nailed it when you said um, that, it is a gathering place for people. So it's more than just bricks and mortar. It's not just a building. And when people think about heritage protection, they often think about um, building fabric and protecting the facade of a building. Um, but what the National Trust is trying to um, to do through this campaign is to highlight that heritage is more than that. It's actually what happens in those buildings and the community spaces that they can provide. And across um, Victoria, across every state and around the world, we have lots of places like this that are kind of like community spaces, but they're privately owned. And so those community uses are very vulnerable to change, particularly when it comes to redevelopment. And we've lost a lot of places like this in Melbourne. So, um, you know, thinking about places like the Greyhound Hotel in St Kilda, the Palace Theatre on George Street. Um, you know, these are these are places where either there's nothing left or just a, a sort of meaningless facade. Um, but we've actually lost the purpose of those buildings. So what the National Trust is trying to do through this campaign is to highlight the importance of protecting those actual uses. Definitely. And hopefully it, you know, sets a precedent for... Um the if other buildings are threatened in the near future. Um, as you were saying earlier, there was a press event uh, last night uh, that was advocating that the historic hotel uh, be recommended, and it was recommended for um, inclusion on the Victorian Heritage uh, Register. So from here, um, this point in the campaign, you know, what else can be done and what uh, can people do? Yeah, so this is a vital moment for people to show their support for the protection of this building. So what's happening is that um, the recommendation by Heritage Victoria is being advertised by the Heritage Council, which is the independent body that makes the final decisions about uh, the register. And it's being advertised for a period of 60 days. During that 60 days, anybody can make a submission either in support or opposing that recommendation. What we would really love to see is that people who love this place and want to see it protected, that they make a submission to the Heritage Council. It, it only needs to be um, very brief, um, but people can do that by going to uh, the Heritage Council's website and clicking through the prompts to the executive director's recommendation. And we'll also be including, be including some links 
to this on the National Trust socials um, and promoting this over the next couple of months. But we'd really love to see as many people as possible making a submission in support of this uh, because we really want the Heritage Council to see how important this is for people, not just for heritage experts, but for the people who use and love the hotel. Definitely. And we can provide some of those links on our website as well. Um, and it was 60 days, right? 60 days. People have 60 Correct. Days. Cool. Cool. All right. We'll make sure all of those details are up on uh, Tuesday breakfast as well. Uh, well, it's such an important um, campaign that's going on. And I think, as I was saying before, you know, hopefully it does uh, set the bar for protecting other buildings so we don't lose uh, some of these very significant um, and historically rich places that have um, served uh all like Victorian people and such icons as well. I mean, everyone knows the curtain and it's such a, as you were saying with, you know, being the proximity to Trades Hall and even RMIT, I feel like it is a place for people that have um, been in Victoria for a long time or people that have just visited um, as well. It's uh, very much an icon in uh, many different streams. But thank you so much, Felicity, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast and explaining how we can also contribute to Save the Curtain. Thank you so much for having me. So that was uh, Felicity Watson, who is the Executive Advocacy Manager at the National Trust of Australia. Uh, Felicity was talking about uh, the John Curtin Hotel and uh, the team up of the National Trust and the Victorian Trades Hall Council to uh, nominate the building for a heritage nomination, sorry, to the Victorian Heritage Register, which it has been recommended. So pretty much... Um, hop on the Victorian uh, Heritage Register website and you'll be able to also nominate to save the building and it's vital that you do that. Uh, Otherwise, uh, an iconic building could be developed uh, into something else. Um, But we'll be right back after this quick break. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants included grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. 
Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4 and children free. Check out our website for plant lists, apsyarayarra.org.au forward slash Australian Plants Expo. A 3CR supporter. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. You're back on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, Well, a new book is about to be released titled My Giddy Aunt, and it follows the lives of a group of women of last century that toured and entertained crowds in Australia and New Zealand as onstage musical comics, actors and male impersonators, braving a new age of cinema and radio. The book is written by Sharon Connolly, who is a filmmaker, television producer and chief executive of Film Australia. Sharon is, in fact, uh, one of the relatives of these women. Gladys Shaw and she joins us on Tuesday Breakfast now to talk about her new and debut book and what she discovered in between all the joking, singing and whistling these witty women did in a man's world. Thank you for joining us Sharon and congratulations on the book. Oh thank you very much and congratulations on 3CR still going on. It's a long time since I've talked to anyone on 3CR and I always love doing it. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. It's so, I'm so happy to hear that you've been on before. It's always nice uh, hearing from people that know how long 3CR has been around for. Oh, well, it's it's one of the more enduring cultural uh, institutions in Melbourne and in in Australia for that matter. Definitely. Yeah. So you've mostly been a filmmaker and television producer throughout your career where uh, this book, My Giddy Aunt, is your first venture into writing. Uh, What prompted you to write this book? There's a couple of answers to that. I mean, the original prompt was finding a box of uh, photographs and newspaper clippings about people in my father's family about whom I knew nothing, really, um, or very little, Um, my dad hadn't grown up with his parents and he was an only child. And so these stories hadn't been passed down in the normal way. So I wanted to find out about those. And as I began to just do some basic research, uh, I realised that um, it had resonance for me as a person uh, in the film industry who was really worried about the state of our culture and the way in which things were going in an industry that was beset by technological change after technological change. So, um, you know, as the internet became uh, the dominant sort of communication form, in a sense, things started to change in in the film and television sector, particularly in the area I work in, in documentary. And there was something about what happened to these relatives of mine who spent decades of their lives working in the popular theatre industry in Australia that felt somehow similar. So that's what set me off. I, 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 um, I didn't make a film because 
basically it's much more difficult to make a film these days in Australia and a film that was so Australian and uh, uh, was so broad in its kind of span of years, it spans about 70 or 80 years, um, was probably going to be something I would still be financing, you know, on on death's door if I tried to yeah. <laughs> do it as a film. Yeah, so it was an absolute liberation to just start writing it and to sit down and think, oh, I can do this myself. <laughs> yeah, and I like that, you know, the affinity you felt with um, some of these people that you were researching with, you know, embarking on new ground. Um and I want to get stuck into the context of the book. So the book follows these women in the age of uh, vaudeville. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, <laughs> vaudeville yeah. in Australia. Um, without giving too much away, of course, tell us a bit about their lives as female entertainers and the vaudeville movement in general, especially here in Australia. Well, there's a couple of things I'd say about that to start with. One is that the book looks at their lives as female entertainers, but it also looks at their lives as women. Yeah. Um, growing up in the late 19th and uh, first part, namely, of the 20th century, when things were changing for women as well. And so um, uh, I wanted to track some of that. And and these women in my family, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my great-aunt, and many of their female colleagues, were profoundly affected by changes in law and changes in women's rights in that era. Obviously, the big one is women got the right to vote, or at least white women got the right to vote in Australia much earlier than in most places around the world, other than New Zealand. And so that was a, that had actually had a big impact on these women. It uh, enabled subsequent changes to various laws and, um, and things affecting women, uh, changes in divorce law, changes in child custody law, um, a whole raft of changes like that profoundly affected them as well. So, so it's about them as women. Vaudeville was a kind of popular theatre that was like the television of its day. It was a, an enormous industry in Australia. Thousands of people worked in it. And it was highly mobile. And these women were too. Some of them had families, but they moved around Australia and indeed around New Zealand uh, constantly. Before there were aeroplanes, mm. before there were railways connecting the continent, these women were on the move, families or not performing in every little town and hamlet, in every big city uh, across the land. And vaudeville was a kind of variety show. So it it had various formats, but generally speaking, it comprised individual acts uh, and often um, a a sort of review or a musical in the second half, which was like sketch comedy in a way, but often folded into a plot. Um, So it was like a little one-act musical comedy. And the people who performed in these shows were multi-talented, including the women. They could do stand-up comedy and often did. They wrote their own material. They, many of them danced. Um, there were forms of dancing called eccentric and grotesque dancing where they sort of pitched themselves across the stage and their limbs went all kind of loose and wobbly. Um, it, most of it was for laughs, needless to say. Um, they played kind of all the stock characters of class you know, so these were unconventional women playing the sort of classic female archetypes, um, uh, uh, naive young girls, um, bossy older women, um, uh, old maids, and a whole host of other appalling female archetypes 
that they weren't living themselves, they weren't living out. So they, in a way they were performing things that were quite contrary to the lives they live. And yeah. I was kind of interested in exploring that territory too. So, so the women in my family all had 50-year-long careers on the stage, which even in today's Australia is a remarkable thing to do to uh, support yourself as uh, 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 an entertainer on the Australian stage for that long is nothing short of miraculous in my view and they managed to do it by adapting as changes came so they lived in the period before radio, they lived in the period before silent films and then as the book covers their life stories we see the introduction of things like silent film and eventually talking film and uh, before that radio and uh, a bit later, television is kind of right at the end of the book. But they adapted over and over again to these new technological forms. They got work in radio. Um, uh, they tried to get work in films. But um, they were able to adapt. Uh, what they couldn't adapt to was something that many people will be familiar with today, which is an avalanche of uh, imported cultural material. So the technology enabled... Uh, the American and the UK film industries, for example, to dump tons of films on our shores and to um, lock up the cinemas so that it was much harder for less well-funded Australian films to get into cinemas. And therefore, there were fewer opportunities for people in the entertainment industries to get roles in films and even to perform in the old ways in live theatre because the theatres began to be turned over and to become cinemas. So that's the kind of territory that I'm looking at and, and that's the history of vaudeville. Vaudeville itself um, was often said to have been killed by the talking talking pictures, but in, but in fact, uh, vaudeville kind of got uh, killed off by a whole lot of forces and mostly they probably would have adapted in some way in the end to working in an industry that included talking pictures, except the Australian film industry died off. Um, as a result of all of that in the late 1920s, early 30s and wasn't really resurrected until the 1970s. Yeah, wow. Um, and you mentioned a little bit there, you know, what was so kind of resilient about these uh, uh, female entertainers and um, I wanted to ask and go a bit deeper into that about, you know, doing all this research. What did you find uh, really inspiring about these women, especially, you know, since, as you were saying, they were navigating the entertainment industry as female comedians uh, in an age where women were very much uh, not regarded as being very funny in daily life, uh, required to be very docile. Um, yeah, what did you find uh, inspiring about these women? They were just so out there. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I I thought that women in the late 19th century and early 20th century Australia all lived pretty domestic lives, um, safe at home with kids and um, doing a lot of domestic work. They didn't have public lives. These women had intensely public lives and they defied... They, they, they had children, they raised... Or not all of them. My great-aunt Gladys didn't have a child, but many of them had children and raised families. And um, But they nonetheless... They were remarkably independent and they were remarkably prepared to go against convention. So 
my great aunt Gladys is a great example. She she just did so many things that were so outrageous. In in the, in the pre First World War years, she danced the tango. That was considered a bit outrageous. Um, after the war, in the twenties, she picked up the saxophone, um, which was considered to be a rather evil instrument. You know, something about sax and sex. They sound <laughs> similar, I think, but they but they were they weren't they were certainly not um, jazz. The whole era of jazz. Um, my great aunt and my grandmother and my grandfather, indeed, had a big jazz band that was called Keith Connolly's Syncopating Jesters. And they were all parts of it, part of it, and they did comedy routines and played instruments and played dance numbers. But they were they were quite anarchic, and they were quite um, outrageous in the kind of combinations of things they did. And I think that's what I admired about them. They were always prepared to give something new a go, and they were um, complete. Well, Gladys and my grandmother seemed to be very willing to um, to not be respectable women, but mm. to, to test the boundaries on stage and to some extent off it. <laughs> yeah. Um, such an incredible story and it's so nice, you know, these are your relatives and would be such a great insight into your own family history. Um, unfortunately, Sharon, we're quickly running out of time. I mean, I could talk about this for way longer, but I mean, more of an incentive for our listeners to go and pre-order the book. But just before we have to let you go, um, if you could tell our audience, you know, where they can pre-order My Giddy Aunt and purchase the book. Yes, I I believe it will be in bookshops next week from August the 2nd. So you should be able to find it at a good bookshop near you somewhere. Yep. Uh, and it's available for pre-order on Booktopia and also from Upswell Publishing. Yeah, yeah. And if people just look up My Giddy Aunt, Sharon Connolly, yeah, there's heaps of places that you can pre-order it from. Um, and I highly recommend that our listeners do so. It sounds like an absolutely fabulous book and a lot of time and effort has obviously gone into it, Sharon. So congratulations on that. And thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast this morning. Thank you very much for having me. As I said, it's lovely to be back on 3CR. No worries. Come back anytime. We love having reoccurring guests. Uh, That was Sharon Connolly, uh, the author of My Giddy Aunt, which is her debut book, um, and it follows the lives of women from last century who toured and entertained crowds in the vaudeville era in Australia and New Zealand and how they really pushed the boundaries in terms of stereotypical feminine traits that... uh, lots of women were forced to be doing. Um, It sounds like an absolutely incredible book, um, entertaining and rich in history. So highly recommend that people uh, grab a hold of that when it comes out uh, next week. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Um, Just to run through, we uh, had a few replays. We heard from Pamela Kerr at Acts of Cruelty book launch. uh, And we also heard from Vanessa Nakati on Democracy Now! speaking about the climate crisis uh, in Uganda and Africa uh, at large. And uh, Fung was able to speak with Priya Namana, who is the CEO of the Gertrude Street Projection Festival, which is happening, uh, starts on Thursday, the 28th of July. Uh, sounds like an incredible lineup. 
Uh, and I spoke with Felic- Felicity Watson about the protecting the Curtain Hotel uh, and getting it on the Victorian Heritage Register. And we just heard from author Sharon Connolly about her new book, My Giddy Aunt. Uh, keep it locked to 3CR. We've got Accent of Women coming up as always. And uh, I hope you have a lovely Tuesday.